the first question that we have uh, right now is from Caroline. Caroline says, good morning, Radio Pulpit. How are you? Interesting program. I was reading John chapter 7, verse 33, where Jesus tells his disciples he is going to a place where they cannot go. What was he meaning? Uh, yeah, please can you advise me? Thanks, Caroline. So, Caroline, in terms of answering a question live on air, it's good to get the passage uh, in front of me. I'm just pulling up John chapter 7, and I am... Uh, I am uh, looking at John chapter 7 verse 33 and that's not the right place but I think John chapter uh, 14 or 15 is the right place. Uh, so John chapter 14 sounds like it's where you are wanting to go uh, and cannot go. Um, uh, where I am you cannot come. That's John uh, verse 34 of John chapter 7 verse 34. 34. I have found it. It wasn't 33. It's when officers are sent to arrest Jesus. The Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him. And the chief priests and the Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. And Jesus then said, I will be with you a little longer and then I'm going to him who sent me. That's verse 33. Verse 34 reads, You will seek me and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. The Jews said to one another, where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What does he mean by saying, you will seek me and you will not find me and where I am, you cannot come? Okay, so that's uh, that's the text in context. Uh, John chapter 7 verse 32 to 36. What's going on here? Well, uh, if we go back to the beginning of the chapter, um, Jesus is in Jerusalem and it is a festival. It's one of the great festivals. Uh, Jesus is at the Feast of Booths, uh, the Feast of Tabernacles, um, and uh, he has come in from Galilee. Uh, you might remember from the beginning of the chapter that his brothers were planning on going up to Jerusalem and they kind of sneered, they didn't believe him. Uh, they had encouraged him to, to go and he had said, no, my time has not yet come. This is attached to an ongoing discussion in the book of John about Jesus Christ, knowing that he was planning to go to Jerusalem, uh, ultimately to die at the hands of those who hated him, to die as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. That's from the beginning of the book of John, as John the Baptist recognizes Jesus Christ, his cousin, uh, as being the, the promised Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one of God. So in chapter 7, we are in the middle of this festival, uh, this great feast. And Jesus, even after his brothers go up, uh, goes up himself, but not in a big song and a dance. Uh, in actual fact, many of the crowds are asking the question, where is he? Is he here? Um, some are saying he's a good man. Others are saying, no, he's leading the people astray. Um, but at this stage, uh, everyone's kind of keeping their opinions about Jesus Christ to themselves um, because they fear the Jews. And in the context of the book of John, the Jews are, are the Pharisees. They're the Sanhedrin. They're the leaders of the people of Israel who have set themselves against the person of 
Jesus Christ. So in the middle of the feast, um, Jesus goes up to the temple and he's teaching and the Jews are marveling uh, at his teaching. Uh, they're like, they're, they're amazed because they recognize that Jesus hasn't studied at the great universities. You know, Paul was from Tarshish, a university city, and he had studied under Gamaliel, the great Pharisee. Um, they're amazed that Jesus is speaking with such power uh, and he's speaking with such um, uh, such uh, uh, immense excellence uh, not like their Pharisees who were, who were speaking about their own laws and and their own systems Jesus was was really talking in the power of God and the people are really stirred uh, they really are stirred um, and Jesus carries on engaging with them um, particularly around the person of Moses in verse 22 Moses gave you circumcision not that it is from Moses but from the fathers because obviously circumcision was around before Moses it came from Abraham um, and he's talking about the Sabbath it's it's working up to a confrontation again between Jesus Christ and and the Jews and uh, and in particular John is using that term in relation to the leaders who are set in opposition against Jesus Christ he he ends off um, the, the the section uh, by saying don't judge by appearance but judge by right judgment and at that moment from verse 25 and on people are asking the question can this be the Christ can this be the Messiah is Jesus Christ the one who was promised even from from ancient of days as the one who'd come and basically uh, rescue uh, his people Israel redeem them um, from this world uh, that's the question that is on everyone's mind um, people are people are asking this question and many people are believing in him we get that in verse 31 it says yet many people believed in him even though there were there were many that were opposed to him um, and they said when the Christ appears will he do more signs than this man has done in other words Jesus was attested to by signs and miracles and wonders and the people could recognize this well that's the context in terms of how we get uh, to the passage uh, where your question is embedded um, the Pharisees now are hearing the crowds muttering these things about them. They realize that the tide has turned and, and people are believing in the person of Jesus Christ. And so the chief priests, along with the Pharisees, send their officers to arrest him. This is going to be their moment of confrontation. Even though, according to Jesus Christ at the beginning of the chapter, this wasn't going to be the great moment of confrontation. That would come later in his life, uh, in, in, in many months' time. Um, but Jesus says, in that moment, I will be with you a little longer, and then I'm going to him who sent him. And given the context and, and given what it is saying, it seems clear to me, uh, Caroline, that Jesus is talking about his death, uh, he's talking about his resurrection, he's talking about his ascension, he's talking about his return to be with his Father in heaven. Uh, for now, he is with them, but there will come a time, and it won't be long, where he will be away from them. And where he goes, they cannot come. Uh, the Jews, and again, that's the leaders uh, at that sage, says to one another, where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? And, and that, in all likelihood, is a reference to Galilee, um, Galilee of the, 
uh, of the Gentiles. Uh, Jesus Christ spent much of his ministry in the north of Israel, uh, an area which was much more cosmopolitan than the capital city Jerusalem where many Jews were. Uh, he spent his time uh, 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 ministering in areas that were that were known for uh, Gentile inhabitants, and then even further north uh, of Galilee, you would start to enter into the areas of Syria, where Antioch, uh, Syria, Antioch was, um, and and maybe uh, the, the the Jews were thinking, is he going to run away? Uh, we plan on arresting him. Uh, in their hearts, they're probably already uh, starting to conspire and plan to kill him. Um, is Jesus going? be a flight risk is he going to try and, and get away from Jerusalem and get away from from standing trial and uh, and answering the accusations which they intended on leveling against him and, and so with all of that in mind Jesus then says in verse 34 you will seek me and you will not find me where I am you cannot come and the Jews said to one another where does this man intend to go that we will not find him. Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What does he mean by saying, you will seek me and you will not find me and where I am, you cannot come? And so the answer there is, is Jesus is talking um, of his uh, intentional death uh, for the sins of men, his subsequent resurrection, his ascension into heaven, and the truth that these religious elite people uh, would not be able to follow him. I do want to go to John chapter 14, which uh, as I was flustered in the beginning, I, I referenced it. Um, it's when Jesus uh, is basically confronted, uh, not by the Jews in this case, but by his own disciples. Uh, and he uses the same kind of language to them. In John chapter 14, uh, it starts off with him basically saying to them, and now we're at a much closer uh, uh, part of the story to the Passion Week, uh, the, the death of Jesus Christ. He says to his disciples, do not let your hearts be troubled. You need to believe in God. Believe in me also. Uh, in my father's house, he says, there are many rooms. Uh, and if it were not so, I would not have told you that I go to prepare a place for you. There's a difference in terms of relationship between the Jewish leaders of Christ's day who hated him and were set against him and the disciples uh, who he had around him uh, in terms of his desire to be with them where he was going. Uh, in John chapter 14, we read of the disciples uh, that Jesus was going ahead to prepare a place for them. Um, one of the disciples, Thomas, uh, said to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? Um, it's the same kind of question that the Jews were asking. The Jews didn't know where, what Jesus was really talking about um, when he said that he was going to a place where they could not come. And the disciples didn't understand either. And so they asked him the question, we don't know where you're going. Um, how, do we, how do we find you when you get there? And Jesus answered them, with this language, and this is very important, Caroline. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And what I want to say is the difference between the religious leaders of Jesus' day who hated him and wanted to see him fall, and the disciples of Jesus' day who loved him and wanted to be with him was this. Those who come to Jesus come through him exclusively because he is the way. 
they come to him through his words and through his revelation because he is the truth and they come to him for life because he is the life if you want to be reconciled to God the Father, you must be reconciled through the person of Jesus Christ the Son, for there is no other way uh, to be made right with God. Caroline, that was a really great question. Thank you so much for asking it. Um, I really do appreciate it. And uh, if you're listening in and you have other questions regarding uh, salvation, how salvation works um, around Jesus Christ, uh, and these things now would be a great time to ask the questions let me tell you how that works and how you can ask questions uh, live on air this morning and maybe just to say again we are in a remote location i'm sitting in a in like a coffee bar at uh, wingate golf course in the clubhouse uh, it is the radio pulpit golf day this morning and so we are uh, broadcasting live from a mobile uh, studio a mobile station but that doesn't mean that you can't ask your questions live on air uh, let me tell you how you can ask questions uh, we don't have a studio line this morning, so you can send voice notes or written uh, notes uh, through to our WhatsApp line. Uh, stand by with a pen and a piece of paper in order to write it down. It is 082-657-2729. That's our WhatsApp and Telegram number, 082-657-2729. If you are a twit, you can send in tweets via at 657am that is our tweet handle and uh, if you are on Facebook listening to the live stream it is currently on the Radio Pulpit Facebook page that is Radio Pulpit slash Radio Console and uh, under the live stream you are welcome to drop comments uh, I will pick those comments up in front of me uh, and we can engage and uh, interact on those uh, the first uh, engagement came in from Caroline uh, and maybe to say to those of you who are listening in today I really do also love just hearing from long-time listeners that they are listening in even though I'm in a remote studio I'm guessing that uh, some familiar faces and some familiar folk uh, are listening in this morning do drop a, a one-liner whether it be via the whatsapp uh, interaction or whether it be on facebook do drop a one-liner so that I know that you are out there um, it's always encouraging uh, interacting and talking uh, with folk uh, Andrew uh, is a uh, uh, a really good friend Andrew has made the comment on Facebook uh, 15 minutes ago uh, he is the pastor of God First uh, on the East Rand and a close friend and uh, ministry partner of mine uh, he often dials in and listens to the first segment of the show on 4SA in order to understand the state of the nation and he says hello Mark will definitely take the position of God first, as I believe all Bible-believing Christians will. Um, but, but friends, we live in a democracy. What a wonderful opportunity to hear our voices raised and to, um, and to speak to current legislation which is coming around. And so the encouragement would be uh, to make your voice heard uh, through the DSA submission or by going to uh, 4SA. We are going to go to a break now. Um, we're coming close to the top of the hour. We're going to be listening to a song by Joe Nimant, Let the Sun Rise. Looking forward to the second hour of the show. Well, friends, uh, I am now going to get to your questions. And I, I do thank, thank 
Caroline for the first question which we received uh, earlier this morning but subsequent to that it turns out that uh, my internet wasn't refreshing um, my my dashboard uh, it, uh, I see questions from tons of people from Ishwa from Zeli from Caroline again uh, from Andrew or a comment from Andrew from Teresa from Jacqueline from Penny from Jennifer uh, Andrew has a number of Andrew has a lot of follow-up questions. Most of them are related to the work of the Holy Spirit. Andrew, thank you for that. After I said such nice things about you in the first hour of the show, um, you have uh, you have sent a couple of curveballs in my way uh, for the second hour of the show. Although I'm looking at the time, it's quarter past ten. Uh, let's get going on the questions. We'll see how far we can go. Um, the first one is just a fun question from Andrew. Um, it is related to the word uh dogs in the New Testament and in particular he says in Philippians chapter 3 verse 2 we are told to watch out for the dogs do you know which breeds Paul was talking about in specific and he's assuming pit bulls which is kind of funny and we all laugh at that and uh, we imagine like what did they have in New Testament times chihuahuas or, uh, or, uh, or or whatnot the truth is dogs in the New Testament as far as I understand Andrew I don't have a commentary open uh, in front of me but but dogs worked slightly different uh, in New Testament times in that there wasn't a, uh, a range of um, breeds like we have today. And dogs actually weren't uh, revered like we revere them today. I mean, we talk about dogs being our best friends. Uh, my dog at home is Zoe. Uh, Zoe in Greek means life. And uh, I love that dog. She's, uh, uh, I feed her in the morning. I feed her in the, in the evening. Uh, when we have guests over, she comes and puts her head on my lap and I, I scratch her behind the ear and I have a relationship with my dog. She's very important to me. Um, but back in New Testament and particularly Old Testament times, dogs did not have um, such a good rap uh, with the people around them. In actual fact, they were often violent. They would often um, kind of prowl around uh, the cities or the towns in packs. They would be scavengers. Um, they weren't uh, the household pets that we have them today. And so in terms of breeds, uh, a lot fewer breeds uh, on the cards. We've been breeding dogs um, for specific tasks um, during the domestication kind of age, which I think started subsequent to New Age times. And so uh, dogs slightly different um, to, uh, to what we see them today. Great question. <laughs> Great contextual question. Really appreciate uh, your engagement. I'll be getting to a couple of others that you have sent in and shot in uh, a little bit later. Uh, Bree says, good morning. I just want to ask for prayer. And Bree, uh, do you constantly uh, see those questions that or those uh, comments and requests for prayer that come in? Uh, you are consistently prayed for. Uh, uh, Angela, uh, Angelique says, I'm a bit confused uh, reading through the Old Testament. And then there's a question directly related to polygamy, directly related to polygamy. I'm talking about polygamy in the Old Testament uh, and then saying I'm a, I'm a little bit confused. Uh, why does it seem that God is so fine with polygamy in the Old Testament? Maybe just to say that polygamy doesn't seem to be um, God's uh, first prize or will in the Old Testament. Um, if you read the story... 
um, of Genesis. Uh, polygamy, the first use of polygamy is in chapter 4. Um, it occurs after the fall, before the fall of man into sin in Genesis chapters 1 and 2. Um, it seems that God's intended will for Adam, certainly, would be that one man leaves his mother and his father and is joined to his wife, that's one woman, and the two become one flesh. The emphasis does seem to be on a single relationship between a man and a woman. That's in Genesis chapter 2 toward the end of the chapter. I'm, I'm going to take a, a, a guess, uh, verse 27. In Genesis chapter 3, um, what we find is the fall of man into sin as Adam is tempted, as uh, Eve uh, engages with the serpent, uh, we find man, instead of uh, obeying God and obeying God's law, which had been clearly stated to Adam, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree in the garden, uh, Adam willfully rebels against God and man falls into sin. From that moment on, it seems as yeah, very clear that, that part of the consequences of man's sin is that husbands are set against wives and wives are set against husbands. We see that in the curse. Uh, in chapter 3, verse 16, we read that to the woman, he said, Surely I will multiply your pain in childbearing. Uh, in pain you shall bring forth children, and your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And it, it, it seems that before the curse, men and women live together in harmony, uh, receiving from God uh, their, their role to exercise dominion, um, Adam being the head over his wife Eve, who is his helper, not the help, his helper in terms of that task. And it seems that they were exercising their task in harmony. But after the fall, uh, there came conflict even between the sexes, even between husbands and wives. The first case of polygamy is in chapter 4. Uh, in chapter 4, you, you'll know the chapter well, Cain uh, kills Abel. Did I, did I say chapter 4? <laughs> I meant to say, uh, um, uh, well, let me, let me take a look here. Um, in chapter 4, towards the end of the chapter, I'm sure there's a story of Lamach. Uh, and his wives. Uh, can you, his wife? Yes, it's at the end of chapter, um, the end of chapter four. Uh, we know that at the beginning of chapter four, the, the first children of Adam and Eve, Cain and Abel, Cain kills his brother Abel, and so murder enters into the scene. Uh, the world is, is just rough with sin, and it goes from bad to worse in actual fact. Uh, we have the generations of Cain detailed for us for us in Genesis chapter 4. And in Genesis chapter 4 verse uh, 17, we read of Enoch from Enoch. We read of Ered from Ered. We, we read of Mahuljael. And from there we read of Methushael. Um, and so it carries on. And we have a son born named Lamach. And there we have the first case of polygamy. Lamach takes two wives. Um, and Lamech's story is not a good story. This is not part of the redemptive story. Uh, he takes these two wives. In effect, he actually shakes his fist at God um, and says to his two wives, uh, Ada and Zilla, hear my voice, you wives of Lamech, listen to what I say. I've killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's revenge is seventy-sevenfold. Uh, the idea of polygamy entering into the story at this point just points to further degradation uh, of mankind. Now, 
I must be honest with you, um, uh, Angelique. Uh, I, I'm also confused when I read the Old Testament story and, and read of polygamy. Um, it, it does seem odd as God allows even the covenant people of God uh, to enter into these polygamous relationships after the fall. Um, uh, and, and even um, under Mosaic law, um, legislate and regulate what these relationships will be like. Um, but it's not just an Old Testament phenomena. If you turn to the New Testament, 1 Timothy uh, chapter 3, you have the descriptions of what the um, the pastor, the man of God, the elder, uh, needs to look like. And there we have a clear reference to polygamy, although it's not in the positive, it's stated in the negative. It says, um, in terms of the very first um, aspect of what an elder must be. Reading from verse 1, the saint is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife. And it seems to me clear that, 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 um, uh, that, that this is talking in terms of the context of the day. Um, it's either talking about a man who is married to more than one wife, being barred from the role of elder, um, or given the context, he, he must be a one-womaned man. Um, his eyes must be set on one woman and one woman alone, which then in turn also talks to many other things. He mustn't be a philanderer. He mustn't be a man who's known to go out with many women. Uh, he mustn't be an adulterer. He, he, he in this case, um, uh, certainly is talking to, to, to any kind of relationship outside of one man and one, one woman. Um, Jesus Christ himself speaks to marriage um, in the context of uh, being uh, in a part of the country where Herod, who had married his brother's wife, um, uh, has taken up uh, residence. And, and Jesus affirms by quoting back all the way to Genesis chapter 2 in terms of God's original intention that a man should leave his mother and father and be joined to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. And then goes on to say what God has joined together, let not man separate in terms in, in terms of speaking specifically in that case to divorce. Um, but to say that that the idea of polygamy is complex in the Old Testament. I don't always understand it. Uh, it certainly doesn't seem that it is um, uh, that it is uh, forbidden uh, in the Old Testament. We also don't see particular cases of it being forbidden in the New Testament, Angelique, uh, either. Um, ha however, uh, we do see that those who lead in the church are to be husbands of one wife. And so we do see in the positive sense both Jesus affirming one man and one woman for life, as well as the Apostle Paul affirming that the leaders of the church uh, in specific are to be uh, uh, husbands of one wife. Uh, and so maybe both the, the the beginning of the story as well as the church age affirming and holding up God's original design of one man and one woman for life. Ishwa, um, I'm reading your question here. Um, seeing that we will be celebrating Easter shortly, how do you explain the three days and three nights? Or on the third day, as some will try to explain if calculated, it's less than three days and three nights. Uh, Ishwa, great question. You always send in great questions, Ishwa. I uh, always really appreciate uh, you making me do flip-flats in terms of understanding uh, the biblical writings. Um, Ishwa, my understanding of the reconciliation of the four gospel accounts of the last hours of Jesus' life, his subsequent death, 
uh, and then his resurrection is this, uh, that the time is calculated uh, not in terms of um, uh, uh, three 24-hour periods, but from his death on the Friday, um, the Friday evening, uh, the whole of Saturday, and Sunday being the resurrection. And so it's calculated uh, uh, from, from his death on the Friday uh, through to Sunday. Uh, and rather than being three literal periods of 24 hours, it's talking about um, three periods, uh, three day periods, um, Friday, Saturday, uh, and Sunday. Sunday also being the day that he was resurrected. Um, Zella asks the following question. Good day, Pastor Mark. And listeners, Pastor, please can you announce and send through a number and address where you can make your voice known with regard to the state uh, of disaster? Uh, Michael didn't recognize it. I was late. Uh, thank you, Pastor Mark, and God bless. Uh, thanks, Zella, for the opportunity to just restate the information that we were speaking about at the beginning of the show, which was related to the conversation I had with Michael Swain from 4SA. Uh, if you would like to make your voice heard uh, related to the Health Amendment Act, you can do so um, by going to www.4sa, that's F-O-R-S-A dot org dot Z-A, and there there are links right on the front page uh, to the Dear SA platform uh, where you can make your voice heard. Uh, and thank you so much, Stella, for standing up and being counted uh, uh, and, and making your voice heard in that way. Uh, Caroline just submits thank you uh, for that answer. Uh, it answers my question and love your station. Caroline, thank you for the submission. I really enjoyed it. And that was the question regarding John chapter 7, verse 34 uh, and onwards. Um, uh, Andrew um, writes in the following question. Why did Jesus say in Revelation 22, verse 12, Behold, I am coming soon. Now, does Jesus have a different understanding of the word soon? Because it's been two millennia already. And that is from Dieter from Dip Kloof. Um Thanks for the question, Dieter. That really is an excellent question. Uh, <laughs> eschatology, uh, future things, uh, considering uh, what uh, the Bible has to say. Uh, about how all of these things are put together. I, I'm going to turn to, in my Bible, to Revelation chapter 22, uh, so that I can read the passage in its own context. It says uh, from verse 6 and then following, uh, and maybe just to point out the word soon, appears a number of times uh, in Revelation chapter 22, in verse 6, in verse 7, in verse 12, and then again in verse 20. And so clearly just in terms of the repeated use of the word, the emphasis uh, of the author John uh, at this particular time, and he is quoting uh, the words of Jesus Christ, it is on soon, it's on imminence. Uh, verse 6 reads, and he said to me, these words are trustworthy and true, and the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, has sent his angel to show his servants what must soon take place. And that's referring to to everything in the book of Revelation. Um, the book of Revelation, if you go all the way back to chapter 1, begins by saying uh, these are the things that have occurred, these are the things that are, are about to occur, these are the things that will occur. Uh, and so some of what will occur is, is imminent. It, it, it will occur immediately. Uh, and then in verse 7, And behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words 
of the prophecy of this book. Um, and, and there's that declaration, I'm coming soon. Um, Maranatha, come Lord Jesus, come. Uh, God's people have said throughout all the ages. Verse 12 again, behold, I'm coming soon to bring my recompense with me, to repay each one for what he has done. I'm the Alpha and the Omega, that is the beginning and the end, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Uh, and then in verse 20, he who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. That's a comment by John uh, uh, after that great and glorious statement. Uh, the grace of the Lord Jesus will be with all. Um, amen. So the question is, um, uh, if we've got the emphasis on soon at the end of Revelation, um, how come hasn't Jesus come? How, how come haven't these things been fulfilled? Um, when is he going to come? Um, uh, is he coming soon? Uh, and when will Jesus come? It's been 2,000 years and we've been waiting. Uh, what is going on? Well, to start off, let me say that soon is a relative term, right? Uh, this isn't I'm coming tomorrow or I'm coming next week or I'm coming next year. The word choice, um, both in the words of Christ as well as affirmed uh, in John, the word choice is soon, which is a relative term. If you're microwaving popcorn soon, means within the next three minutes and you start hearing the pops going. But if you're waiting for a job or if you're waiting for the birth of your firstborn child, soon can be up to nine months. Um, soon can be years if you're studying. I'm going to be, I'm going to graduate soon might mean seven years if you're a doctor and it might mean a much shorter period of time uh, if you are in, a, if you're studying a different course. Soon is a relative term. So that's, that's the, the first point to make as we consider Revelation chapter 22. I do think though it is also important to mean that soon or quickly does mean without unnecessary delay. In other words, in other words, Jesus Christ will come and he'll come when he comes and there's nothing that will delay his coming. Um, he will come glorious, he'll come on the clouds, he'll come with his holy ones, he'll come according to his own timetable, which in actual fact uh, relevant to his uh, his death. Uh, you'll remember his brothers encouraged him to go up to Jerusalem and, uh, and face the onslaught of the Jews um, because they believed his time had come. And yet Jesus Christ was quite intent that his time hadn't come in John chapter 7 uh, and that he was the master of his own timetable in terms of his death and resurrection. He laid down his life and he took his life up. Well, so too in terms of his second advent, um, whilst he has used the word soon and so we can anticipate an imminent arrival of Jesus Christ, uh, we do not necessarily have to um, picture that as happening uh, two days after the statement was made or two weeks or even necessarily 2,000 years. It has been a long time since Jesus made the statement and yet the statement is still true. He will come soon. Um, and we can be reassured that 
God is not dragging his feet in this matter um, concerning prophetic events, that his timing is perfect, that the Lord is not slow in keeping his promises, as some understand slowness, um, but rather that God is patient and he's waiting for the full number to be added in. All the elect will be saved. God has an intention to bring in the full number of the elect and every single one of them will be brought in before Jesus Christ comes to judge the living and the dead. And so I think as we put all of that together, um, we get an understanding that uh, Jesus is coming soon, that God's plan is advancing, that it is not delayed even for a minute, um, but it is related to every single other aspect of God's divine and sovereign timetable. I've used the word imminent already uh, in this conversation. I just want to underline it again. Um, Jesus' return is imminent. In other words, the next item on the divine timetable, which I believe is the rapture of the church, is an imminent event. It could happen at any moment. There's nothing standing between us and the next event on God's sovereign and divine timetable. Um, Jesus is going to return soon, and we can expect him. It's as safe as houses. Uh, when we think of the prophecies of his first advent, they were fulfilled to the exact details. And we have many, many more uh, prophecies of his second advent. In actual fact, the ratio is about one to eight in terms of for every one time that the Bible speaks about the first coming of Jesus Christ, it speaks eight times about his second coming. And if his first coming was as safe as houses, friends, we can know that we know that we know that his second coming is as safe as houses. And so then, again, to relay this question back to that very first question, Jesus, uh, the, the Jews not knowing where Jesus was going uh, and not knowing um, where he was, but to the disciples, Jesus making the promise uh, that uh, he was going ahead to prepare a place for them. Uh, the, the question that I have for you is, are you ready for the imminent and certain return of Jesus Christ to judge the living and the dead. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth and the life, and no man comes to the Father but through me. And so our response to this declaration at the end of Revelation 22 of the soon return of Jesus Christ, our our response, the right response to this is to respond in faith, to believe that Jesus Christ is coming soon, and then to respond in, in personal faith in Jesus Christ, even now, putting our faith and our trust in him as our Lord and our Savior. Um, Dieter from Deepcliff, thank you so much for that question. It, it, it really does uh, instill so much thought. Teresa, long-time listener, if we had a, a crowd and applause, we'd play it right now. Um, but Teresa sends in his questions, which is plural, and normally he asks three of them. Uh, <laughs> I have to log into the system again in order to see them. Uh, I'm just trying to pull them up. Uh, where have you disappeared, Teresa? There you are. I can see you. You are right in front of me. Um, how many times did the disciples receive the Holy Spirit? What an excellent question Teresa and what a complex question to answer because when we think of the Holy Spirit and we think of receiving the Holy Spirit uh, we might divide that into uh, into uh, uh, two kind of uh, possible times uh, in terms of believers in this 
in this present age. We talk about receiving the Holy Spirit as a sign and as a seal to the day of redemption. Uh, at the moment that we put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ, we receive the Holy Spirit as a as an indwelling gift. He is He is given to us. He is He is close. He presences Himself in us. In actual fact, it's by the Holy Spirit that we that we make that first real prayer to God, Abba, Father, um, as the Holy Spirit works within our hearts and within our minds. Um, but then we talk about the filling of the Holy Spirit, an ongoing process which which goes on the whole way through our Christian lives, uh, as we as we are constantly needing to be filled with the Spirit in order to be empowered in terms of our day to day lives. The question though is, well, what about the disciples? How did it work for them? And to that, Teresa, let me say, kind of complicated because we hear and see of the of the disciples receiving the Holy Spirit more than once. Let me give you an example. If you go to the end of the book of John, which we seem to have been in quite a bit today, uh, so the end of the book of John, so not John 21, which is kind of like John's epilogue, um, but rather um, uh, right before we get the purpose statement, the writing of the book of John, um, we have Jesus appearing to his disciples. And in verse 22, well, let me just read, because you'll know the account, right? Uh, Thomas uh, uh, isn't with uh, the disciples um, and it is the evening of the resurrection the first day of the week Sunday the doors are locked and the disciples are upstairs they're fearing the Jews uh, they're, they're terribly afraid and um, Jesus miraculously appears among them and he says peace be with you and when he says that he shows them his hands and his feet they identify this is really Jesus Christ who was crucified um, Jesus says again to them my peace be with you um, as the father has sent me even I am sending you there's a commissioning of the disciples and we find that at the end of of each one of the gospel accounts uh, a, a commissioning of Christ's disciples to be apostles to be messengers to represent him into the world and then he says this in verse 22 when he had said this he breathed on them and said to them receive the Holy Spirit and if you forgive the sins of any they are forgiven them if you withhold forgiveness from any it is withheld and so we see them receiving the Holy Spirit in verse 22 of John chapter 20 but then in a completely different um, uh, a scene in the book of Acts written by a different author uh, Luke on the day of Pentecost uh, we we read that the day of Pentecost arrives in Acts chapter 2 verse 1 uh, we read that the disciples these apostles whom Christ had breathed on were together in one place and then suddenly from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind occurs and uh, where they were sitting and uh, the, the spirit divided like tongues of fire and rested on each one of them and they were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other languages as the spirit gave them utterance and maybe just to point out there uh, that in John chapter 21 they receive the Holy Spirit in uh, Acts chapter 2 uh, it appears that they are filled with the Holy Spirit in terms of the use of the language um, at other times we speak about being baptized by the Holy Spirit uh, it seems like the, like the disciples went through a number of engagements and interactions with the Holy Spirit and I think that that's true to say uh, the truth is that the establishment of the church uh, what we have is an account uh, of a um, progressive uh, revelation and understanding of the disciples in terms of the interactions and engagements with the Holy Spirit. 
and it is not until Acts chapter 2 that the church is actually established. Um, uh, at the end of Acts chapter 2, it says that those who believed were baptized. That's talking about a water baptism uh, in response to the command of Jesus Christ to baptize the nations. And that day were added to them uh, 3,000 who were saved. Um, and so we have the establishment of the church uh, in Acts chapter 2. And yet the Holy Spirit and the way that he engages um, uh, remains a, a little bit different the whole way through the book of Acts. And when I say the whole way through the book of Acts, I, I don't mean odd, I, I just mean distinct. Um, so, for example, the disciples of John the Baptist, who had not received the Holy Spirit but had received the baptism of John, they received the Holy Spirit in in a in a mechanism which is slightly different um, to the way that uh, the believers uh, and the order that the believers received the Holy Spirit um, in Acts chapters three and four, and later again um, with Cornelius uh, and the believers in that household. Um, it, it seems that the Holy Spirit had freed. Um, and and interacted in slightly different ways uh, as as these groups were being established, uh, but this is the important point. Um, they received the Holy Spirit, and the reason why that's important is because Paul does say uh, in his epistles that there is one Lord, one faith, um, one baptism, and that's the baptism of the Holy Spirit. That that this is a that there is only one baptism, and that all who are in Christ are baptized in the Spirit. Maybe also to see, say, Teresa, the reason why the, the, the response and the engagement of the disciples is somewhat different uh, to the church is, is that they were Jews and they were Israel and uh, they engaged with Jesus Christ as Jews and as Israel before the establishment of the church when they became uh, what were later called um, a, uh, Christians, uh, much later in the Acts story. Um, there was a time, even in the Old Testament, that the Holy Spirit and the way that he engaged with believers was very different to the way that he engaged in the church. Um, in, in the Old Testament, and certainly uh, amongst uh, the disciples, the way that the Holy Spirit engaged is he would rest upon specific people for specific, uh, to empower them to specific tasks. An example of that would be King Saul. Um, King Saul had the Spirit of God at different times, he even prophesied uh, and was counted among the prophets. And yet um, there was a time where the Holy Spirit left him, and in fact an evil spirit was sent to torment him. Um, the Holy Spirit's engagement in the Old Testament and with Old Testament saints was different to the Holy Spirit's engagement in the New Testament and with New Testament saints. To the New Testament saints and after the establishment of the church in Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit is given as a seal, as a guarantee to the day of redemption. No longer does the Holy Spirit um, dwell in a man for a period of time to empower him to a specific task, but rather the Holy Spirit dwells with us as a as a permanent um, seal to the day of redemption um, and we praise the Lord for that uh, and so we do see God dealing slightly differently uh, with the disciples um, in terms of them receiving him uh, both in the gospel accounts uh, and then into the book of Acts how we to understand this text um, and unfortunately oh, you're talking about John chapter 20 verse 22 which you actually did uh, write down how are we to understand this text when comparing it to the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit came down on them and at which point did they become born again well 
actually, uh, Teresa, you, you have put your finger on a complicated question to answer. Because um, whilst the Bible gives us the narrative, it tells us how these things occur, uh, it doesn't necessarily give us the theological definitive answers to the questions that you might ask. Um, I certainly know that the disciples believed in Jesus Christ. Um, uh, when when we get to John chapter 20, they put their hands into his side, they put their fingers into the holes in his, in his hand. Um, uh, the, the high point of the Gospel of John in chapter 21 is when Thomas declares, my Lord and my God, certainly that, that, is, that is faith, that is belief upon the resurrected Jesus Christ as Lord and as Savior. The question is, when did they become born again? Well, they would have become born again when they were baptized in the Spirit. And it might very well be that that was the moment of them being baptized in the Spirit, when Jesus Christ had received the Holy Spirit. Um, they, they, they certainly seem to be acting differently, even at the beginning of Acts. In Acts chapter 1, we again have them in that upper room. We again have them uh, together. Um, but they're not described as being in fear for the Jews as they were at the end of the book of John. Instead, they are gathered together for prayer, about 120 of them waiting uh, for the, the promise, uh, which uh, is very evidently clear in Acts chapter 2 as the promised Holy Spirit. Um, and so they may very well have been born again at that stage. Um, but. But the narrative, uh, both in the Gospels and in the book of Acts, I don't think is absolutely clear. Like you can unequivocally say that this is true. Um, uh, certainly, though, they are filled and empowered uh, to the task in Acts chapter 2 as the Holy Spirit descends um, and comes upon them. And they stand and speak and speak in languages known to men, miraculous um, uh, ministry. Uh, and as Peter is emboldened to declare the gospel of Jesus Christ in Jerusalem uh, to the Jews that were gathered. When did John the Baptist disciples get born again? Those who interacted with Paul when they are mentioned, they, they'd never heard of the Holy Spirit before. Well, there it's a little bit easier because they talk of having the baptism of John, but they very specifically say that they know nothing of the Holy Spirit. And so uh, it's very clear that whilst they understood something of Jesus Christ and something of Jesus being the promised Messiah, that they had holes in their understanding of, of what that meant, that Jesus was the Son of God, that we needed to put our faith and our trust in Him, uh, believe upon Him uh, for salvation. And so I, I would say it's evidently clear that uh, John the Baptist's disciples in the book of Acts are, are, are saved as they put their faith and their trust in Jesus Christ, uh, as they go through um, the baptism of the Holy Spirit, uh, so to speak. Um, and uh, in terms of that conversation, uh, between Jesus and John the Baptist, uh, Jesus, between Paul and John the Baptist's disciples, uh, that conversation is in uh, about the middle of the book of Acts. I would have said Acts chapter 17 if I was going to guess, um, uh, but but I think I'm wrong. It, it, it's certainly not Acts chapter 11. I'm I'm just busy going through my Bible now, um, seeing if I can identify. The location. Uh, I'm going back to Acts chapter. Uh, no, it'll be after 15. I'm I'm fairly certain. Um, uh, I'm, I'll I'll find it, and when I when I find it, I'll 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 talk about it. Um, uh, Acts chapter 20 is is Paul at 
at uh, at Ephesus. I, I, I'll find that for you, Teresa, and, and talk about it live on air when when I do. Um, in terms of questions, guys, I, I, I do want to try and see if we can get through a couple more. Jacqueline says, blessings, Mark and family. I'm always listening to your program. I'm listening to Pulpit almost 20, 24-7. Have a wonderful day. Uh, shalom, uh, Jacqueline. Jacqueline, thank you so much for uh, speaking in. Hi, Mark. Long-time listener. Penny, uh, have a great day at the golf. I, I am having a great day. There's a nice vibe uh, in the... Uh, in the uh, clubhouse uh, I'm watching people um, exercise outside I'm not much of an exerciser myself um, but hitting balls all over the place and they seem to be having a great time and I have enjoyed speaking to one or two people uh, off air uh, this morning I have been enjoying it uh, Jennifer says morning Pastor Mark and uh, family first time in a while that I can listen to you on my DSTV today because I'm at home uh, although I tune in late but I'm grateful and I'll catch up uh, on the last uh, of our uh, of many uh, thanks Jen and it's lovely to hear from you uh, Jen um, in Revelation there are seals trumpets etc which seal or trumpet are we in currently uh, a listener asks online um, again it's Dieter in Deepcliff well the answer to that I think is embedded uh, in at the beginning of the book of Revelation. If you turn to Revelation chapter 1, Dieter, um, uh, Revelation opens by, by saying this, and this is the word of, of Jesus Christ. Um, uh, the kind of the, the overarching um, controlling text uh, that explains uh, what the book is all about uh, is is found in verse 19 and it's just after this revelation of Jesus Christ uh, to the Apostle John uh, John sees Jesus uh, he sees him in, in his resurrected transcendent glory uh, amongst the the, the lampstands uh, he describes him as one like the son of man which is a, 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 a reference to the book of Daniel uh, the son of man clothed in a in a long robe and a golden sash around his chest uh, describes him with hair of white uh, his eyes like flames of fire and burnishing a, 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 a in his feet burnished bronze refined in a furnace and his voice is like the roar of many waters and he's holding seven stars in his hand and from his mouth comes a sharp two-edged sword and his face was like sun shining in full strength it's it's an idea of the transcended glorious Jesus Christ the, the resurrected and ascended Jesus in all his glory in response to that John saw him and fell at his feet as though dead and laid at his feet a, a right hand gets put on him saying fear not I'm the first and the last that's that alpha and omega the beginning and the end uh, Jesus says I'm the living one I died and behold I'm alive forevermore and I have the keys of death and Hades and right therefore the things that you have seen that's this this present vision those that are and what follows are the seven letters to the seven churches in chapter 2 and chapter 3 and those that are to take place after this and that would be the, the rest of the book of Revelation a, a, a series of unfolding um, revelations given to John of what will happen uh, in the future 
And then Jesus goes on to say that as for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand, they are the seven golden lampstands, and the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches, and then we get these seven letters to the seven churches in chapter 2 and chapter 3 of the book of Revelation. But the point is this, and to answer your question directly, uh, when you when you reference the seals and the trumpets and the scrolls of Revelation, in truth, uh, those are yet to be broken, those are yet to be blown. Uh, this is the things that are to come. These are the, the future revelations. Um, there will come a time, uh, I believe, that the next event in terms of the unfolding revelation of God is a rapture. It will happen suddenly. It will happen imminently. Um, and then after that, we will have the unfolding of the rest of the book of Revelation in terms of all of these prophecies fulfilled um, one at a time. Um, I do want to carry on uh, going through questions and I have lost my, um, my board for a moment. It might be that I've run out of battery life. Uh, which is a bit of a which, which will make it a little bit difficult uh, to get back to the questions. Um, in in the meantime, uh, let me let me see if I can. Uh, ah, yeah, they they're back. Um, hi, Pastor. Just to clarify, uh, says Janine. Um, uh, says Jennifer. Um, uh, oh, yeah. Um, I'm being defeated by technology here. Uh, just to clarify, my family, first time in a while that I can listen to you. I think I've gone through that question before. Uh, is it true, asked <laughs> the listener, that golf stands for gentlemen only, ladies forbidden? Great opportunity for me to remind you, dear listener, that I answer public questions and I don't have a clue when it comes to golf. Um, I kind of know that it happens with a stick and a ball and uh, the intention is to get the ball in the hole, but I have no idea what golf stands for <laughs> and I'm uh, and I'm not even going to take I'm not even going to take a guess as to what that might be uh, of, of what the definition means um, Andrew uh, my dear friend from uh, God First Eastrand who is a reformed charismatic says given that the New Testament church had a united common view on the use of the gifts of the spirit why is the church divided on this topic today and I, I think what Andrew is di is driving at is is not so much the gifts of the Spirit that they exist, but the gifts of the Spirit in terms of their present operation, um, uh, in terms of possibly uh, the gift of tongues, uh, in terms of the gift of maybe uh, apostle and apost uh, apostleship, uh, the gift of prophecy and the operation of prophecy within the church. And the, the question is, uh, given that the New Testament church had a united common use, view on the use of the gifts of the Spirit, why is the church divided on this topic today? Let me say, I don't actually think that that's completely correct, uh, Andrew. Um, I don't think that the New Testament church had a common view on the use of the gifts. Um, in actual fact, the book of Revelation, as I, as I read, uh, chapter 12, 13, and 14, is specifically written because Paul had to address abuses and misunderstandings of the gifts of the Spirit in operating uh, in the city of Corinth and amongst the Corinthian believers in particular. And so it, it appears even in biblical times um, there was some need for correction, uh, there was some need for exhortation, there was some need for clarification uh, regarding 
having the gifts of the Holy Spirit. Um, but it certainly seems that uh, that this confusion has been perpetuated in our day and age. Um, there certainly was uh, common understandings or, or very uh, similar understandings uh, through much of the church's history, um, but there seems to be a proliferation of viewpoints uh, over the last hundred years or so. Maybe also just to say um, that it's not just that there are two views of the Holy Spirit and gifts uh, today, uh, a view that the gifts have ceased or a view that the gifts are still operational, but even amongst charismatic believers, uh, and, I, and I'm saying that with, with uh, believers that believe in a continuation of the gifts, uh, there are a myriad of views of what the continuation of those gifts might look like. Um, so some would uh, would see uh, apostolic succession, uh, that the, that the gift of the apostles is still in operation today. Uh, others, uh, and, and I mean, I, I say this with confidence because I, I know different charismatics that, that, that hold to different views just on, on the apostles themselves. Uh, others would, would, would say that no, the, the role of the apostle in terms of that which was given to Peter and, and James and John and, uh, and later to Paul, uh, that, that, that gift was a foundational gift. Uh, that if there is an apostolic gift today, uh, it is secondary in nature. And so, uh, what I'm saying is there's a wide range of diversity when it comes to the operation of the gifts. For myself, I certainly would fall into a segment of the church which would identify themselves as cessationist. Uh, I, I, I certainly believe uh, that there has been a cessation to some of the gifts that we see uh, in New Testament times. Um, and when I say cessationist, I'm probably a pragmatic cessationist uh, in that um, whilst I don't believe that the Holy Spirit couldn't, for instance, uh, give the gift of tongues, uh, that's certainly within his sovereign prerogative to do and I certainly wouldn't want to quench him if he did it um, I look at much of what gets called the gift of tongues around me today and I would say oh, well this doesn't look biblical um, biblical tongues as I see it in the book of Acts chapter 2 since we've referenced that passage in particular this morning already uh, would be languages known to men and I'd be expecting the gift of tongues to operate as languages known to men that said, your question is, is why is the church divided on this topic? And I, I think the church is, necess is necessarily divided on this topic because we are coming to different interpretations of the biblical text. And we can't pretend that we have unity in terms of our interpretations if we have neither unity in our interpretations nor in our experience. This, however, is a much bigger topic and one that I think we actually need to devote some attention to in the future. And so, Andrew, you and I have been friends for a long time, brother, and at some stage I'd love us to get together and have a talk, even a public discussion on this particular topic. Unfortunately, I've reached the end of my ability to answer this and other questions uh, for today. It's three minutes to ten, which means that we do need to go to a song before we go to news. And uh, and so, by necessity, I need to sign out, even though I'm quite enjoying the Q&A this morning. Our prayers do go out, as always, to the elders and the deacons who hold lines in local churches, as well as to our missionaries who serve in foreign fields. And our prayers each week go out to first responders, to our police, to our defense force, and to those who dispense justice in our country, our firefighters, paramedics, our nation's nurses, and medical personnel, as well as for correctional services officers all over our nation. You have been listening to Table Talk with me, your host, Mark. 
We are going to go to news shortly. And so until next week, Friday, do walk wisely, do live holy, and do testify zealously. God bless. Amen.